Hello and welcome to The Rebind, a podcast about putting all the pages of the Bible back together. On today's episode, we pick back up our discussion of Ezekiel 16 and 23, having already addressed some of the modern baggage that comes with them. This time around, we'll let those chapters tell us their provocative message and connect it to where it really hits home today. What does the worst kind of scandal and betrayal really feel like and cause? Check it out. I realize I've committed some sort of podcasting crime by starting a two-part episode that I didn't finish for, what's it been, 10 weeks, a couple months? Now, unless you've been listening to these a lot later than the release dates and happen to just jump from the 28th episode to this one, you've probably forgotten all about Ezekiel 16 and 23 by now. Maybe even Ezekiel as a whole is a little fuzzy. But I realize, too, with the slower pace of biweekly episodes, plus holiday breaks and interviews, it's not really reasonable to try to give a whole rundown of Ezekiel up to this point every time I put a new episode out. So I'll give a 30-second recap as a compromise, then remind us of what's going on in this drawn-out two-part episode, and then we'll dive into unpacking the prophecies. And from there, we'll ponder some of their impact in our own cultures and Christian journeys today. So we've been walking through the book of Ezekiel piece by piece for about a year now, almost. Uh, It's a pretty neglected book of the Bible because it's so strange and offensive and long, We kind of pick apart an inspiring vision here and a decryption code for the apocalypse there. But really, it's the way the book as a whole develops that's so important and so key to understanding its message. And its message, like all of Scripture's dusty pages, is so incredibly needed and valuable for the way we think and live as Christians. So in the first half of Ezekiel, the Lord pokes and probes and chases down the status quo to expose the devastating consequences behind all the half-truths that the Israelites have been propping themselves up with in the face of an intending disaster. God is too gracious and personal to let his people deceive themselves about what their relationship with him is actually like. So by the time we get to chapter 16, still in that probing, shock-and-wake-you-up kind of mode, Ezekiel kicks his rhetorical strategies up a notch. All over the book, we've gotten acted-out stage props and vivid visions of what's wrong and metaphors and parables, but this massive 63-verse parable in chapter 16 is like the operatic follow-up to a cell phone jingle. Ezekiel 16 and 23 tell us about two sisters or a woman who was rescued from abandonment, lavished with love and treasures, married to her rescuer, but who then abandons her rescuer husband, brazenly prostitutes herself with all the gifts she's been given, and ends up despised by all her lesser lovers. She doesn't even realize the weight of what she's done. Now, even to call this chapter a parable is a bit of a stretch because it's not saying once there was a frog who met a scorpion. It's spoken directly to Jerusalem, a real audience, as if they were actually these made-up characters committing these made-up crimes. And that way, through the lens of that shocking tale, they glimpse, we glimpse the actual history and crimes these people have been living out more clearly. We realize how serious it is. 
So I decided to group chapters 16 and 23 together, even though they're so far apart, because they basically tell the same parable or story, just with slightly different emphases. And they they contribute to the unfolding message in Ezekiel in different ways because of the different places they show up. Someone's still going to read Ezekiel 23 for us when we get to that point in the book, in the podcast, but we're comboing the two chapters together here so that we can discuss them easier. Now, I recommend uh, going back to episode 28 uh, to listen to Caleb Ashton's reading of Ezekiel 16 to refresh yourself in this story. I'm not going to repeat the whole reading here since it's super long, but with the gist of those stories back in our brains now, and with the cringiness of it addressed in the part one episode, let's spend the rest of today looking at a little closer examination of those details and what that might mean for us today. Let's start by walking through Ezekiel 16, and then we'll walk through chapter 23 and tie the two together. Though I've been calling these chapters parables, they're really more like giant legal accusations. Here's what's been brought against you, and and here's the consequences of that. Yet the accusation is presented in a way that gets the accused to visualize and feel the shocking weight of their crime. Having that perspective of an accusation parable or an imaginative indictment, it's important to realize the way that chapter 16 starts. Son of man, mortal, confront Jerusalem with her abominable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your umbilical cord wasn't cut nor were you washed in water, weren't even rubbed down with salt, nor wrapped in blankets. No eye took pity on you to do even one of these things for you, to spare you. You were thrown out into an open field because you were detested on the day you were born. I passed by you, and I saw you kicking around helplessly in your blood. I said to you as you lay there in your blood, live. I said to you, as you lay there in your blood, live. I made you plentiful like sprouts in a field. You grew tall and came of age so that you could wear jewelry. So this doesn't begin with the Lord haphazardly calling everyone names, and really offensive names at that. It begins where the story of the Israelites begins. It begins where the story of every follower of Christ begins, with the compassionate initiative and grace of God and their helplessness and abandonment. This is not a story of mankind trying to get in touch with God and him getting mad about it because they're not perfect. It's a story of Israel being rescued and lavished with care and love and then abusing that kindness in disgraceful affairs. So this Jerusalem personified as a woman grows up, nourished by the Lord, becomes his bride. The Lord washes and anoints her and clothes her with royal treatment. But verse 15 says, You trusted in your beauty and capitalized on your fame by becoming a prostitute. You offered your sexual favors to every man who passed by so that your beauty became his. You took some of your clothing and made for yourself decorated high places. You engaged in prostitution on them. You went to him to become his. You also took your beautiful jewelry made of my gold and silver I had given you and made for yourself male images 
and engaged in prostitution with them. Now, the parable imagery here is blending with the real-world issues of what's happened, like a hybrid. Israel took the very prosperity and peace and influence that the Lord had given it to bless the nations and serve him, and they used it to experiment with other idols and serve the nations they were supposed to influence. It's not only ironic, it's outrageous. So on the one hand, these chapters are trying to do more than just list the facts of the formal complaints. They're trying to paint the emotional picture of how the Israelites have betrayed their faithful husband. But at the same time, there's enough real-world crimes blended in to show how this is more than just an emotional affair, if you know what I mean. There's enough details about Jerusalem's actual crimes against humanity, their actual crimes against God, to reassure us in this hyperbolic, shocking tale that the punishment it ends with is well-deserved. Verse 20 and 21 even talk about how Jerusalem took the children that she had with her loving husband and sacrificed them, like like murdered them and offered them up in the middle of her selfish pursuits. Was your prostitution so small a matter, it says, that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fired idols? And with all your abominable practices and prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking around in your blood. The drama keeps breaking hearts as it keeps going. The Lord diagnoses Jerusalem in verse 30. How sick is your heart? In verse 32 and 33, he calls her an adulterous wife who won't receive her own husband, but actually pays perverted customers to take advantage of her services. Now, remember, Jerusalem is personified as a woman, but this is, this is targeting all Israelites, all Jerusalem, men and women. It's a metaphor. So things come to a head when the accusation shifts in verse 35 to the sentence. Therefore, you prostitute, listen to the Lord's message. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because your lust was poured out and your nakedness was uncovered with your lovers, because all your detestable idols, because of the blood of your children, that you have given to them. Therefore, take note. I'm about to gather all your lovers whom you enjoyed, both all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from all around. I will expose your nakedness to them. They will see all your nakedness, and I will punish you as an adulteress and murderer deserves. Again, we got to remember the ways that reality blends with the metaphor in this parabolic accusation. If we just read Ezekiel 16 alone, flipped right to it, it might sound like some husband is way overreacting to an affair. But this marriage relationship is the one between Yahweh and the Israelites. The the warning over and over in Ezekiel is that Jerusalem, the city, is going to be invaded and fall. The, 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 The final nail in the coffin is about to get hammered in. So if the woman here personifies the city... Of course it makes sense for her quote-unquote clothes to be taken, i.e. the city being plundered, the walls torn down. You can kind of fill in the blanks for her to be exposed for the, the lovers she flirted with to show their true colors and have all the consequences catch up with everybody when the city finally falls. 
Now, in verse 44, got to speed this up just a little, a new development in the vivid story occurs when the sketchy family of Jerusalem is called out too. Samaria, as in the northern tribes of Israel, are the elder sister. And, and Sodom, like Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom is the other sister. But instead of taking to heart what happened with those sister cities, she followed after them and even amped up their hearty disregard. Now, this is a theme that picks up more in the second round of this metaphor in chapter 23. But before we jump there, notice not only does this accusation metaphor start with a tender reminder of the Lord's initiating grace and kindness, it actually ends with it too. Verse 53 and following, we get a hint mixed in with the judgments that Sodom, Samaria, and Jerusalem will have their fortunes restored. But the final verses of this chapter are breathtaking. For this is what the sovereign Lord says, verse 59. I will deal with you according to what you have done when you despised your oath by breaking your covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish a lasting covenant with you. Okay, so... Though he has every right, the Lord is not permanently divorcing Jerusalem, but will renew the marriage like he started it with a lasting covenant this time. Verse 61, then you will remember your conduct and be ashamed when you receive your older and younger sisters. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on account of my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will remember, be ashamed, and remain silent because of your disgrace when I make atonement for all you have done, declares the sovereign Lord. So the children that Jerusalem willingly killed in her journey of self-discovery will not leave her childless in the end. She'll be reconnected with these other wayward cities like mother-daughter relationships. And we cap it off with the important element that atonement will take place to make this happen. The sins won't just linger out there with God saying, oh yeah, I guess it's not that big of a deal now. You know, enough time has passed. He will deal with those sins in order to renew the marriage, not just with punishment, but also with atonement, sacrifice, a new covenant kind of points forward, right, to Christ. Okay, so now chapter 23 going to go a little bit faster this time. The progression is a little different. The imagery is more shocking and crude. The reminders of tender kindness and hope for a future aren't really present in this one. The crimes that get highlighted are more political than religious, though, of course, the two intertwine. The point is, the second round of this very similar metaphor accusation escalates what it draws on from chapter 16. It's one of the final prophecies before the turning point in the book when Jerusalem actually falls. And so it's some of the most shocking and offensive and shake you up declarations in the whole book in terms of rhetorical strategy. It also kind of explains why there aren't those hints of hope in this one. We're at the climax of the judgments and the probing prophecies. It's almost like chapter 16 hits hard with the metaphor 
whoa, that, that's the kind of adultery all this is? And then chapter 23 hits, wow, e- even then you don't feel the weight of that? Let, let me show you how bad and offensive this really is. Now, this time in chapter 23, the story starts with the two sisters, Ahola and Aholaba, Samaria and Jerusalem. Don't read too much into those names, by the way. On the Hebrew word level, both Ahola and Aholaba contain the word ohel, which means tent, actually. <laughs> Why? Well, people have been guessing at that for ages. Maybe it's like a, a marriage tent really making the betrayal here sting. Maybe it's pagan idol-worshiping tents. Maybe it's like the, the tent of meeting in Exodus tents. God wants to dwell with them. Or maybe it's, it's old-sounding terminology talking about cities to show how long-standing the sinful trend is. But if the meaning of those names was critical for understanding the story, it would have been more obvious, but it isn't. Heck, maybe it's just a made-up fictional name, like Jane and Janet, just, just to step into the metaphorical, hypothetical world for a second uh, to, to, to see it's not so hypothetical. The point is, since way back even into Egypt, the people of Israel have prostituted themselves, spiritually speaking, with other lovers, other gods, other nations, other enticing powers and ways of feeling secure, whatever. The way these shocking crimes are summed up in this chapter is, you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back. And thus, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. Verse 35. The whole thing ends in verse 48 and 49. I will put an end to those obscene conduct in the land. All the women will learn a lesson from this and not engage in obscene conduct. They will repay you for your obscene conduct, and you will be punished for idol worship. Then you will know that I am the sovereign Lord. Again, women here are not actually the female species. They're, they're cities, okay? Samaria was Sodom. They were supposed to have that kind of turn back effect on Jerusalem, but it didn't work. You know, if a parent sees one kid spit on the food their mom made for them, and the other kid is there watching, if the gracious two strikes don't work, what's the parent do? For the other kid's sake, at least. All right, time out, right? Even here at the end, it doesn't say, I, the Lord, will have my petty revenge. It says, I will put an end to this obscene conduct. Remember earlier, child sacrifice, etc.? All right, so there's, there's tons more that we could talk about and try to explain and elaborate from Ezekiel 16 and 23. But I think that's enough just for this time so we can tie all of this together for today. As interesting and maybe even emotional as that powerful, provocative accusation is, before we start spelling out a bunch of implications of this, we've, we've got to ask how we fit into this dialogue in the first place. At a bare minimum, we might say that we learn about how much God notices and doesn't like being toyed with. He's gracious, a faithful deliverer who rescues us when we're abandoned. But he's not the giving tree taken from over and over until he's completely forgotten. 
not dissing the given tree here. That's definitely some sort of crime. But you know what I mean here. We, we might think of that as as pretty petty and jealous, like for that to be a trait in the Lord, that, that he would be so upset about some experimentation. But is it really so petty? Does any of us really want the spouse that says, oh, you just slept with your neighbor? You, you just slept with my best friend? Why should I care? It, it, it just goes to show how prone we are to actually morph our image of God to fit what we're comfortable with when we want passionate, committed, invested relationships with the people who matter most to us, but then react to God's accusations of unfaithfulness, like, geez, take it easy, God, this is my business. To the extent that all of us have reacted to God's kindness and mercy with flippant disregard and in ways that really offend him, these chapters vividly portray in story fashion the theological facts laid out in Romans 1-3. to I mean, we've heard it a lot. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in a culture where story and emotion are prized maybe even more than logic sometimes, that's really valuable. But even here, I'm getting ahead of myself. Sure, we, we learn God is way more invested in our relationship with him than we are. We learn he takes our unfaithfulness really seriously. We might relate that to our lives as Christians today and, and gain a new you know, a few extra pounds of reverence in our prayers, a loving eagerness to obey the one who's so passionate about our covenant marriage. Yet, the audience and context here, you've got to admit, it's not an easy one-to-one -one correspondence. I mean, Jerusalem, the Israelites, were this nation called out by God to be unique, to know him and represent him, even though not everyone in the nation really did. We don't want to imagine the Lord speaking these words to committed Christians today who do know and represent him, right? But we can't say that unbelievers today have the same kinds of, you should know better, you've already been pulled into knowing Yahweh obligations as Jerusalem, right? Do you see what I'm saying here about the application dilemma? Where does this actually hit home? I'm usually one who's discontent with just the broadest overarching general application that we could make, like with God not wanting to be toyed with. You know, sometimes that discontent gets me in trouble, but I tend to think the deeper investigation and connections help us to see what's really unique and valuable about each part of Scripture. Now, obviously, the way this message in Ezekiel 16 and 23 is communicated is a big part of how it impacts us. It demands we step into the shoes of those incredibly unflattering characters and, and see how the shoe fits. It bypasses the antagonistic brain to puncture the antagonistic heart, kind of like the prophet Nathan did with David when he gave a parable about a king who killed the shepherd's only sheep and then said, that was you. But still, it's the audience question that's tricky here. Who is this really targeting to make them enter the shoes of these characters? If it isn't directed at committed believers, if it isn't directed at non-Israelite, non-Christians, then who fits the bill? I think what might be a good comparison today 
is uh, disillusionment culture. I'm thinking here about people who maybe grew up in a healthy gospel-centered church or were surrounded by that in other ways, who maybe got into the scene or the youth group for a time and digged the community. You know, they came up for the altar call at the winter retreat, but they went to college, graduated college and thought, I liked the songs, I liked the community, the feeling of being accepted and loved, but this Bible stuff, this God of Christianity, I'm beyond that now. Like, I'm over it. I will take the parts I like, take the experiences I've been given, and I'm going to make my own personal religion. I'm going to mix my favorite blend of gods and mantras and life mottos. I'm still going to feel like I'm tipping my hat to that part of my early years, but Jesus freaks? (laughs) Right. I've evolved further than those outdated nutjobs. Now, I'm not saying my first ministry strategy for talking to a disillusioned millennial would be to read all of Ezekiel 16 out loud. You know, relaying threats from a God they may or may not believe in might not help our relationship or their positive impression of Christianity. And we got to be smart about how we try to connect this to other people for sure. But I do kind of wonder if the fact that this passage and passages like it are so unquestionably avoided hasn't contributed to how easy it is to make that shift in the first place. I mean, if we're only ever told in those churches growing up, in those youth groups and college retreats, that God is always forever after our own happiness like a desperate pushover parent is, instead of being after our happiness the way a committed and invested spouse is, is it really that big of a leap to say, I've found something or some God that does that better for me now? The jarring heartbreaking shock of these chapters is not the lewd, crude behavior of the woman in and of itself, although that's also shocking. It's the fact that that's her response to the loving marriage she abandoned. That's what makes this sting. That's what convicts us of complacency and betrayal. If we're personally on the fence of joining that disillusionment crowd or we're talking with friends in that camp, How can we show ourselves and them that the good things they've been taking for granted and abusing have actually come from the one we're tempted to leave behind? The values we have for love and belonging and truth and justice, where did those come from? Darwin? We really think we're going to walk away with something better, twisting God's words there to mean what we want them to? When he's the one who gave us those in the first place? And we really think there's just some different version of God out there that's more to our liking, that's happy about us having spiritual affairs because we still want some kind of personal connection to the divine? I remember being in a class with uh, Dr. D.A. Carson, and he was talking about... um, well, I can't remember. I, I think it was the first few chapters of Genesis and and uh, sin or hamartiology, which is the fancy term for a theology of sin. But I remember him saying how nowadays the concept of sin or unrighteousness isn't something that clicks with autonomous you-do-you Americans as much as it used to. He suggested that the concept of betrayal, which is one angle of looking at what's wrong, with sin really does click. 
I can't remember exactly why it was he thought that. Maybe it's the, the highly relational culture that we have, and even if it's just through social media. We crave acceptance. We demand approval. We assume faithfulness in a broad sense from our friends and family. And so when we feel like that's broken, like we've been betrayed, that betrayal really stings us. And to think about our betrayal of God helps us see how we've wronged him and need justice more easily today than just saying, you're a sinner, would. Now, if that's true, then we've got a gold mine here in Ezekiel 16 and 23. It's not like modern America shies away from the TV AMA shows anyway. It's almost a prerequisite now. And if we're going to say, my cousin just commented on my ex's Instagram. I can't believe they would betray me like that. How much more are we going to enter into this scandal in Ezekiel and say, you've got to be kidding. I can't believe they would do that, 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 that I would do that. You're saying I've done that? But, but how? Okay, now we've got something. See what I'm saying? Of course, this could prompt some extra barriers and resistance, which is why I think it's important to clear up some of the objections to the stigmas here, like we did in the part one of the two-part episode. But that's part of the beauty with this. Even while the chapter says you should be legally punished for child sacrifice, and that doesn't necessarily hit home for complacent Americans, the sting of these chapters in particular have to do with the relational framework those accusations are brought up in. It's saying you've betrayed a lover You've disgraced a relationship, which I think we at least have more of a category to consider without immediately shutting it down. We don't like betrayal. No one does. But cheating on God is the unfathomably worst kind of betrayal, precisely because having that marriage is the best and most demanding kind of marriage we could enjoy. I hope all that helps you embrace the shock and the probing prophecies of Ezekiel as part of your lifelong journey to let all the Bible operate in your life. The hopeful encouragements, the sober warnings, the happy, the sad, the lofty philosophy, the raw poetry. With our baby steps, saturating ourselves in just one neglected book for now, I hope you'll rejoin next episode as we continue the journey with Ezekiel 17. In the meantime, I'd like to close directing our reflections and introspections to the covenant spouse who proclaims these words to us. I'd like to pray part of the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's morning prayer for fellow prisoners. Lord Jesus Christ, you were poor and in distress, a captive and forsaken as I am. You know all man's troubles. You abide with me when all men fail me. You remember and seek me. It is your will that I should know you and turn to you. Lord, I hear your call and follow. Help me. O Holy Spirit, give me faith that will protect me from despair, from passions, and from vice. Give me such love for God and men as will blot out all hatred and bitterness. Give me the hope that will deliver me from fear and faint-heartedness. Rebind is made possible by the audio engineering of Andrew Horning Sound and the graphic design of Adam Anderson. 
If you want to show your support for the podcast, be sure to leave some ratings and reviews and spread the word. Don't forget to, if you're hungry for some more content, you can always listen to the weekly sermons that are posted on the Buy the Book Resources website. Till next time.